All right, everybody, thank you for tuning in to another episode of The Message is Moving, where we break generation curses one day at a time. On this episode, we speak on breaking the generational curse of mental health. The stigma of mental health, particularly in black communities, has been plagued for centuries. Although the conversation on mental health have been easier in recent memory, we still have a long way to go to recognize that many of us are still understanding the misdiagnosis of mental health in black Americans. WebMD statistics show that black Americans are more likely than white Americans to grapple with feelings of sadness, worthlessness, and despair. Yet fewer than 10% of black Americans get mental health counseling or treatment, compared with more than 18% of white Americans. But my listeners know how I do. I bring a foreign guest to create meaningful and impactful dialogue. My guest today is going for a PhD in psychology as a student at Columbia University, and she agreed to lend her educated two cents in a discussion. Welcome, Brie Baker. Hey, thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Absolutely. Glad to have you. So first thing first, what, what made you seek higher education in psychology? Well, I mean, it's kind of a an interesting and twisted long story, <laughs> but to simplify it, um, I think that initially I fell in love with psychology probably when I was about 12 years old. Um, I just, something about, you know, seeing the human mind. I loved exploring human potential. I wanted to know what all can we do as humans? How do we get there? Um, Seeing people thrive and actualize. I love that. But I think what initially sparked my interest in the in mental health in the black community was my own experiences. Um, being, I'm from a very homogeneously white community. Oh. Um, being one of the few black people in my school, definitely usually the only one in my classes, had kind of made me feel uh, just excluded and feelings of you know worthlessness, like not belonging, those types of things. And when I got to college, I learned you know there's there's names for that. Um, and there's research to back that in those feelings. And I thought, you know, if I could pursue this path and research these things, communicate these things to people who, who need them and can be liberated by this information, that's what I want to do with my life. So that's kind of how, in a very short story, I ended up where I am. Oh, wow. So with that being said, based on your background, how was mental health talked about in your household and also in school, since you are usually the only, or if in a small minority of black students. I think in schools, you know, it, it wasn't really talked about at all. I think about, you know, mental health. We had physical health education classes, but there was definitely not a mental component to it. Um, and even if there was, it definitely did not kind of correspond to my experiences. I think mental health, you know, it is universal, but there's so many smaller experiences and being black, it's kind of a big experience that was never talked about. Um, So I think that even if it was, I was, I wasn't able to identify with what they were talking about and addressing because I feel like mental health is often kind of talked about in these white and Eurocentric frameworks that, you know, my family doesn't function that way or I don't function that way. That's not how I was brought up. So yeah, in school, I would say that it wasn't talked about at all, which is a shame. Um, 
And then in, in my family, I would say it also wasn't talked about. I think it wasn't until I got to college and I started bringing these conversations up to my parents and they were willing to talk about them, but it wasn't something that was just addressed in our household at all. Right. And I think I can relate to that um, to an extent because when you describe the term mental health, that's definitely something that a lot of traditional black households, they kind of reject the idea of. Um, they don't look at it as a diagnosis. It's more so of, okay, something's wrong with my kid, which means something is wrong with me mm-hmm. and I'm parent them. So they kind of reject the idea completely. And that's why I think it was such a missed opportunity for generations prior in regards to having that mm-hmm. conversation. And to your point, when you mentioned your eccentric influences on how mental health was spoken about, this is Black History Month. So of course I got a little bit of Black history in regards to mental health as well. And I found something that was interesting. So back in 1848, there was a physician named John Galt, G-A-L-T. He was a medical director of Eastern Lieutenant Asylum in Williamsburg, Virginia. And he mentioned that blacks are immune to mental illness. He hypothesized that enslaved Africans could not develop mental illness because as enslaved people, they did not own property, engage in commerce, or participate in civic affairs such as voting or holding office. Wow. So have you so that's the premise of what we're kind of alluding to today. Because when you hear physicians back in those times, it was probably respected that mentioned that because we had less, according to them, there's no way we can experience emotional distress or any kind of mental health illness. Mm. And when you think about how it comes on to the day, or even like prominent comedians making jokes about it, like, well, we're black, we don't have mental health issues. That's more so for, you know, like you've heard comments about that all over the media and barbershops, I'm sure, and salons. So fast forward to the day, when I look at your Instagram, you shared info on transgenerational trauma. So what exactly is that? Yeah, and I can actually, you know, just pull from that. Transgenerational trauma is this idea that is backed by science, has empirical support, that trauma can be passed down from one generation to the next. Um, Basically, we all have these psychic legacies, which describes the psychological events and factors that are transmitted from adult to child, but also, you know, intergenerationally over time. Um, And epigenetics also supports that trauma leaves chemical scars on our genes, thus proposing the idea that we can inherit trauma. And I think for African-Americans, our collective historical trauma began over 400 years ago. Um, And now when societal systems and attitudes perpetuate oppression, it becomes harder to heal. So yes, this idea that trauma can be passed down, the idea that trauma needs to be addressed and it needs to be healed and it's a long process and that hasn't happened over the generations. And so it just continues to get passed down. Got it. And I, one thing that I, I noticed that you mentioned is that the science supports it. I think that's huge because a lot of our, even if it was one of us or even some white Americans, even when we try to mention like the effects or the consequences of slavery, 
you hear the term, get over it. Mm -hmm. And they feel like it's more so of not taking self-accountability. Right. Where, as you mentioned, the studies show that that trauma is, is more than likely to happen. Um, there's no way you can be in bondage and have that kind of trauma from the, the abusings of everything that happened. And the, the psychological aspect of fatherless homes, you know, from slavery until now, that is not going to affect the younger generation and how they perceive of society and how they move in society. And mm-hmm. it kind of answers to my, my next question, because it's not only white Americans that are saying this. Some black Americans say this too, where it's like they see mental health as a sign of weakness. So mm-hmm. do you think that a lot of black Americans, they're confusing resilience with immunity to mental health? Do you think they're confusing resilience with that? That's why they're ignoring it? I think in some aspects, and I, I think that you know our systems, I think that white supremacy is all to blame for that, that idea. Um, I think in America, you kind of grew up with this idea that we all should have this self-efficacy, that we all are responsible for our own health and for the opportunities that we encounter, for things that happen in our lives. There's always this inherent responsibility that I think America kind of believes or whatever. Um, And while that can be true for those who have privilege and power, those who do not, you know, we're kind of subjected to a lot of things that happen to us. So I don't, I think that in some cases, yes, Mm -hmm. resilience is confused um, with immunity to mental health. I think that that's what white America and in some respects, black America has applauded in the black community is our ability to kind of experience and navigate and for lack of a better word, get over racism and and come out stronger. That's a very... um, prominent narrative I feel like of the black community is that we have some innate ability to be resilient and cope with all the bad things that happen to us so it's fine um so I would say that's definitely a thing but I would also you know I just have to add that that is a notion that's been perpetuated through racist science through white supremacy got it and in regards to well, I'm going to more so go into racial bias. And I'm, I'm just speaking based on my personal, uh, as, you know, the interactions with certain people, right? Like households mm-hmm. or whatever. So, you know, when you have moments like the, the Columbine incident or mass shooting incidents where white teenagers are involved and then you hear the case of mental illness being brought up to a lot of these suspects, these perpetrators, mm-hmm. right? And then when even like, I, I don't know if you've been around the situation, but I can be transparent and say, usually when you hear about a mass shooting or some kind of bombing, our first reaction before we say anything is that must've been a white kid, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? However, on the flip side, not only do you see racial bias or how they're portrayed, but if a black teenager was to commit something, you don't really see that mental health argument mm-hmm. populate as much. So how, how and what ways can we have accountability for treating mental health serious, serious when our parents didn't, maybe our grandparents didn't? Like you mentioned yourself that you 
your household wasn't speaking about mental health like that. So how can you kind of direct that conversation to someone that's aware of it? Like, what's, how did you did it? do it? Excuse mm. me. Yeah, well, I want to go back to something you said about, you know, how white people, white teenagers, it's automatically this association with mental illness. And for black teenagers, it's just sometimes, or, you know, black people in general, it's just associated with some inherent evil or mm. bad childhood or, you know, just thugs or, you know, whatever society wants to throw um, everything but mental illness and everything but mental problems. I think that that goes back to this idea of um, dehumanization Uh that happens a lot with black people in general. The idea that, I was thinking about this earlier, and I'm sorry I'm going on a tangent a little bit, um, but I was thinking about I was thinking about the Holocaust because we were reading about it in one of our classes or it was mentioned very briefly. Uh And uh, we were talking about, you know, the medical experience or medical experiments that happened to uh, Jewish and really anything non, anyone non-white back then and how we have these stories and how we have books. We have Diary of Anne Frank. We have so many narratives, but for a lot of black people that doesn't exist. And I think that they're, you know, historical narratives. I think that that lack of storytelling, that lack of humanization leads to, you know, a lack of uh, understanding black people as some, as people who can experience emotional distress and mental distress and trauma. So I did want to say that um, I think that as a country, as a society, black people have been dehumanized to the point where it's very hard to capture our narratives and the depth of our experiences. We've heard about how bad the Holocaust is, but very few people know how bad chattel slavery was. Um, so I, I had to put that out there because I was just a, a strong thought. Um, but as far as how do we take ownership now that that has happened, because you're right, you know, you can't just go back in time and say, okay, let's heal all the trauma. So what do we do? Uh-huh. I, I do think that a lot of that responsibility does fall on this generation um, as far as having these conversations that can be difficult. I think that for black people, and I can definitely speak just from personal experience, um, the church is where I learn both positive and negative things (laughs) about mental health. Mm -hmm. I think that um, for me, I was growing up, I was heavily involved in the church, which at the time, Uh, around middle school, I had been experiencing, honestly, I think a depressive kind of episode um, when I was about 12 years old. Mm -hmm. And I remember going to church, going to youth group, talking about these things and the response always being that I, there was some evil in me or that my faith wasn't strong enough, um, you know, pray it away, that type of thing. I think that as time has gone on, churches and the black Christian community has really started to reframe how we talk about mental health, um, how we talk about trauma, how we talk about events that may be distressing and things that we deal with. Um, But I think that that is a very strong entity that can make a lot of change in black communities is starting in the church, Um, bringing up these conversations around the dinner table is another, you know, it takes some boldness, but when you ask someone how they're doing, ask someone about their day, 
you know, really being attuned to what they're telling you, um, not being afraid to probe deeper, because I think in the end, people will appreciate being able to talk about their experiences without judgment. Got it. Well, your statement, it was so much to unpack, but I'm going to try. <laughs> so in regards to the church statement, I thought that was very interesting because on one of my episodes, I spoke on um, childhood sexual abuse. Hmm. And my guest, Arthenius, at the time, and she still is heavily in the church, but she didn't mention, because, um, you know, she became a, a childhood sexual advocate and she has her own organization for it. She's in, she's certified to speak on it, but she has been honest in saying that it's not well received in churches. Mm. Um, it's more so of, like you mentioned, pray it away, might be an evil spirit, and all you need is basically God to to get it out. And we're not saying that God is not pertinent on, on assisting you, mm-hmm. but in terms of diagnosing it and having the proper channels, um, it, it creates a situation of neglect almost. Mm. And I thought that was interesting because there was a time where black churches was like a huge staples, even with the civil rights movement. You know, they used to host meetings in these black churches to mm-hmm. strategize. And now it seemed like maybe the church hasn't evolved throughout these years to adjust to what we've learned about ourselves as we as we will hope for with the personnel in the church. Mm-hmm. So I kind of want to unpack that. Um, you also mentioned dehumanizing. I think that's a huge factor, especially when we have someone like a Kanye West that says slavery was a choice. Right. <laughs> <laughs> and I know you can say a lot about that if you wanted to. But when I think about schooling, that is true. I did look up that math and English are mainly the two subjects that there's a certain standard in regards to how they teach or present their educational resources. When it comes to social studies, there's no standard. Mm-hmm. So it's very inconsistent throughout schools. I, I was a little bit more into black history because my social studies teacher happened to be black. Mm. Um, and I was I grew up in a community where it was like Everyone kind of knew each other. I grew up in that kind of community. So mm-hmm. your janitor, your aunt, someone working in the cafeteria, your teacher, they might go to your same church. They might be an aunt. They might be an uncle. Because I was in that community, I think it was a better chance for me to like have that balance. Like, yeah, we learn about the Holocaust, but as black people, that's what we're dealing with, too, because we had that personal commentary. Mm-hmm. So I can imagine when you say how you, how you were in school where you were like the minority, I can imagine the frustrations and hindsight, like, man, that, I didn't really learn nothing about me until I got older. <laughs> yeah, I think it's definitely, I mean, you've said the key word is hindsight too. I mean, it's like full transparency. I had never had a black teacher until college. Uh, so wow. <laughs> when I saw black people around me in the school, it was the janitor. Um, I think that was, that was the black representation at my school. I'm from the South. I'm from, like I said, a very white community. Um, And a lot of the things, you feel the pain of when people are staring at you as you're talking about slavery in class and you're, you know, 12 years old, but you don't have the words or Mm -hmm. the capacity to kind of voice what you're experiencing. But it took me until college and really learning about, oh, okay, there is internalized racism. racism. It's like, oh, okay, oppression does affect the human psyche. You know, learning these things that I wish somebody had told me back when I was younger so that I would have been able to make sense of what I was feeling. Um, So I think that's an excellent point. 
Got it. And just to pro- provide stats for our listeners and to kind of hammer down that point about the, the hy- hypocrisy between black teens and white teens, according to this post from the Washington Post back in 2018, they said suicide rates of African-American children age 5 through 11 have increased steadily since the 1980s and are now double those of their Caucasian counterparts. Black men made up over 80% of attempted suicides among African-Americans in 2015. And in the U.S., black males are three times more likely to complete suicide than black women. What do you feel, because I know you mentioned, I know we have to like the education field, Mm -hmm. balance supremacy. So I know you mentioned speaking about it in a dinner table, and I know you guys say be bold about it. But do you think that might be like in terms of parenting, like as a couple, that we create this? Do you feel like we should handle some resources where we go to therapy together, and then we can be better equipped to speak about it in a table with the kids? Do you feel like mm. it doesn't need to be a teamwork effort in that regards? When when does the step? I know conversation helps, but do you feel like? We should seek out resources first before we have that conversation to kind of fully understand because i do i think um i think that it certainly can't hurt you know i think that there are some people who can have those conversations with children and it's like when you talk about you know the talk we're talking about like the talk about race um Mm -hmm. i think the truth is that most families don't have these conversations um, not just about mental health, but about things going on in our world, about mistreatment of black people, about the history, um, black history, you know, it's all, we're just trying to survive. You know, we don't have time to talk about this stuff. We gotta, we gotta keep right. it going. Um, as far as resources to seek out, I know there's, there's a lot of work being done or that has been done on race socialization, which is basically how we are socialized to talk about race, how our racial identity develops. Um, you know, are we proud of being black? Are we not proud of being black? What do we think of when we think of our racial self-concept? There's tremendous work being done about how to talk to children about these things that also ends up helping, I think, the parent and the adult in the situation kind of learn and unpack their experiences as well with race. I, so I do definitely recommend seeking out resources, um, but I recommend having those interventions early with children. I'm not sure if I can really speak on how early, but I do know that at about three or four years old, children become very cognizant of the fact that they are different. Black children do. Mm-hmm. They can pick up on the fact that, you know, oh, so-and-so is getting treated this way and I'm not treated this way. Or, you know, the study is a very, like, commonly cited study of the the black doll versus the white doll. Children can pick up on what it means to be beautiful in this country, what it means to be intelligent in this country as early as four years old. So I do think that those conversations should happen early. And I think that uh, it is our job as adults now to take ownership of our own mental health so that we aren't transmitting this trauma to the next generation. And that's hard work. You know, that's, it's not something that comes naturally, I feel like in the black community because we weren't taught how to do that, Um, but it's necessary work. I can, and I can just imagine 
the importance of, like I said before, Mattel was always important, but I can imagine like through these times where everything is so broadcasted, killings, like mm-hmm. the George Floyd killing, that was broadcasted for the world to see. And you have teenagers that's on the internet, or even kids might be able to see that because it's, it goes viral. Mm-hmm. I can imagine that if we do not create that dialogue, how that can affect trauma for a child going forward. Because we all experience different generations, but to see it in your face on the cellular phone, where cause there was a time where your parents can monitor the TV, right? Right. <laughs> they can turn the TV <laughs> off. We're not going to see whatever you know they don't want us to see. That's almost impossible because now the TV is on our phones. Mm-hmm. And as the ages go by, you have even an eight-year-old cousin can have a, a tablet and go on YouTube and find a way to go on Twitter. Just like how parents thought we were smart for turning the VCR on, or they can be smart and downloading the app mm-hmm. and seeing whatever they want to see. So to your point, I know you mentioned having that conversation early, and I know it was a case-by-case situation. I wonder how that's going to be. I wonder if the urgency is a little higher if someone has a situation like you where it's mostly a majority white school. Not saying that all white guidance counselors or physicians are not, you know, are not going to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Some of them who might have been assigned to that school probably don't understand black culture. Right. And a lot of times their first maybe diagnosis came from like the guidance counselor. They see a child acting up, bring them to the office after a few conversations. They bring the parent on and depending on how the conversation go, they might get medicated. I know that's mm-hmm. very controversial nowadays <laughs> about yeah. second medication like Ritalin and things of that nature. Um, so I, I guess my, my question for that is, uh, are you, are you a fan? I'm sorry, some of these questions are just coming up to me. Um, it's okay. When it comes to prescribing medicine for mental health for kids, what's your stance on that? I know it might be based on a case-by-case basis, but what's your overall stance of that? Yeah, it's it's very um, tricky broadly. <laughs> um, talking about, you know, medicating children, I... Like you said, it is a case by case basis, but I'm, I'm typically not a proponent of medication unless it's an extremely, you know, severe case of, of I don't know, like bipolar, needing a mood stabilizer or something. Um, right. But you know, I feel like, especially as a first intervention, medication is usually not the answer, and that's just me personally. I know there's it's been very controversial because there's not that many studies on the effectiveness of these drugs. And I'm talking about like antidepressants um, on children. Mm-hmm. And in a lot of cases, it's been shown now that they can kind of have the opposite effect in those who are under 25. So you, know, you give a child an antidepressant and it may increase their suicidal ideation or their thoughts about committing suicide. It may increase levels of depression. It may take away, you know, how people kind of feel like withdrawn. It takes away their personality. They're kind of just shadows and ghosts. Um, wow. Which is another, it, it happens. And um, 
Yeah, sorry, I lost my train of thought a little bit. <laughs> yeah, I typically, I don't go that route as far as uh, medicating children. And also, I mean, this might be going on a tangent a little bit, but the pharmaceutical industry in general and its relationship with mental health, a lot of times is very controversial. There were studies, I feel like I've read this before and I'll have to give you the exact citation, but studies that happen where these drugs weren't found to be effective, but they weren't published because they knew that would hurt the medical industry. So it's a big monopoly, <laughs> it's very political. Right. And for me personally, there's not enough support for these medications to condone giving them to children. Right, and historically, people think it's a joke. I think black black Americans, they, they have a right to be skeptical. Yes. <laughs> um, <laughs> on what's being provided to us, especially when it comes to our kids. This is one day I'll say about a lot of black households, traditional black households, when it comes to their kids, they, they do not play. They'll, mm-hmm. get very, they'll get very defensive because it's more of a protective aspect of it. Um, which leads me to this point. So traditionally in the black household, you know, we, we usually um, discipline our kids a certain way. Hmm. So, and that, that, that little chuckle, as you know that we're here, like we don't have to say it out loud. You know, you know what I, you know what I mean? Our listeners know what we mean. But do you think that affected, affects mental health um, just as playing the advocate of, of the social workers and all these laws about it now? Do you think that, that that can affect in a negative way how we traditionally discipline our kids? I think it can. I think it's a my answer is kind of twofold to that. I think there were certain things or certain ways that I was disciplined that I don't agree with and that I won't discipline my children like that. Um, I can talk about, you know, like spanking um, when I did something wrong rather than having a conversation or, you know, being automatically shut down as saying that I was back talking when I did try to have a dialogue with my parents. Uh, Was I always the most respectful? Probably not. (laughs) But do I agree with being shut down completely all the time as a child? No, I don't. And I think that that caused me um, to kind of always identify the problem as myself. I know that it was very common saying when I was growing up that whenever I started getting in trouble in school or whenever my grades were failing, my parents would always say, you know, well, what's the common factor here? It's you. And it caused me to internalize a lot of negative experiences that happened to me. And I don't fault them for that. I think that was something that they were taught and, you know, them trying to treat, teach me a lesson. (laughs) Um, Uh But I don't agree with that now. And I do think that it can negatively affect mental health. I mean, it definitely did in my case. But the other part of that is I think that there are a lot of strengths and values in the black community. And I'm not talking about resilience because, you know, I really do hate that word now. Uh, But I think that there's a lot of things that we were taught, or at least that I was in a black household that I carry with me today and that has served me really well, such as um, the ideas of being collectivists and just this collectivist culture that a lot of black families have, um, collectivist child rearing. So it's not just, you know, your mom and dad that discipline you, but it's the whole neighborhood, that sort of thing. Um, 
having different mentors to kind of seek out learning from different people, being encouraged to be independent, um, self-efficacy, altruism was really big. You know, you, you build as you climb, that sort of thing that I think can positively affect mental health. Got it. I like that term. I like that phrase you use. You build as you climb. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so to in regards to Brie Baker herself, you also have a YouTube channel. Am I correct? Yes, I do. I have a YouTube channel called Becoming Dr. Baker, where I kind of detail my journey in graduate school, but also discuss topics like this, uh, such as black mental health and all the things that come with that, the positives and the negatives, and really just trying to increase awareness of black mental health, trying to increase representation in graduate programs studying black mental health, and um, yeah, increasing visibility as well. There are a lot of great black mental health researchers out there. There's a lot of work being done that I think you said it, that, you know, it takes a long time to kind of trickle down into the public. So doing whatever I can as a researcher to kind of disseminate that information that I'm learning in school or that I'm conducting through my own research. So I definitely encourage everyone to check it out. It's Becoming Dr. Baker. Got it. And for the listeners out there, please check that out. I actually did um, go on there and I was like, well, first thing first, I was like, well, this is well produced. Second, I think it was a very interesting journey, especially where you can use your platform of social media to really, like you said, increase visibility and kind of raise that awareness. And, um, you know, it, like I said, in recent memory, like I said in the very beginning, in recent memory, I think that conversation is a little bit easier to have, but trauma, transgenerational trans, trans trauma, that's not going to be, you know, overtaken overnight. So, I, I think we have to just keep going forward, um, as you put it, building as we climb. And I know we have some celebrity advocates out there. I know Charlamagne the God, he's been pretty vocal about mental health and he goes to his therapist every week, as he mentions, he likes to remind us of, and he makes sure all of his guests um, make sure they have their, their mental health checked. But um, this is just a random question, but it can be helpful as well. Do you have any books that you and that's have to be like, you know, scholar books, but any books that helped you in terms of realizing mental health that's good for the public? Oh my gosh, yes. I, off the top of my head, um, I have, let's see, Post-Traumatic Slave Syndrome okay. by uh, Dr. Joy Degree. It's D-E-G-R-U-Y. Uh, helped me tremendously just in being able to make these connections between Black history and the current state of Black mental health. Um, there's also another book called The Complete Guide to Black Mental Health by Dr. Rita Walker. That book helped me make connections as well, but in a different way. Um, it kind of helped me start prioritizing my own mental health as a Black woman and seeing how certain political forces or social forces affect mental health and how important it is to to make those connections. Um, so those are the two off the top of my head, but I know I have many, many more <laughs> that I could probably recommend. Well, to that point, um, why don't you give out your, your social media handles and that way our listeners can follow you and in case you were to share those on your platforms that we'll be able to receive them. 
Yeah, for sure. So I'm mostly on YouTube and Twitter. So my YouTube is Becoming Dr. Baker. And my Twitter is Brianna, B-R-I-A-N-N-A, A Baker, B-A-K-E-R. So you can find me there usually tweeting about mental health or graduate school or politics <laughs> for the most part. Right. All right. Sounds great. So another episode of The Message is Moving, Breaking the Generational Curse of Mental Health. Definitely glad to have our guest on today, Bree Baker, becoming Dr. Bree Baker. And for our listeners out there, please check her out, show her support. And we definitely wish you luck on your graduate studies because we know when you become a doctor, you'll be a great use of us in our communities. Thank you so much. It was definitely a pleasure uh, being on the show. So thank you all for listening. Absolutely. This message is moving. It's beat.